so this has been a, a, a weird week. Um, I shared last week, my, our dog died, our dog bear. It's only a couple days ago that I stopped crying because um, I was crying every day. And I couldn't, um, I couldn't have imagined this, the gap he would leave in our home. And all the stories we've been sharing as a family and with others that knew him, he, uh, for context, he was a, a big 90-pound Bernese Mountain Dog. Uh, that Faith, my wife, claimed when we got him that because he's double-coated, he had double fur, uh, he only shed twice a year. So spring and, and, and fall. Totally not true. That dog shed every day. We vacuumed every day. And um, so we're having all these fun stories about him, and we really miss him, like really, really terribly. Burners, I researched, uh, I, we knew he, with life expectancy of a Bernese Mountain Dog is, is short. Um, and one of the breeders said, like, maximum nine years. So I did some research, was like, actually, no, the mean age of a burner is like 8.4. Most burners don't even live to be nine. Bear would have been 11 in February. So he's a remarkably exceptional dog. And we've had all these stories and sharing all these experiences and missing him deeply. And we realized that unlike the saying, you can't teach old dogs new tricks, Bear got smarter the older he got. And he was a dumb puppy and he drove me crazy. But he got smarter and smarter and smarter. He learned new ways to communicate. He had deeper needs. He understood us more profoundly. Him and Faith in the last year of his life spent their mornings when it was weather, weather like it was nice outside, outside on the porch. And if Faith didn't get her coffee and go to the porch, he would communicate with her like, it's time to go outside. And he'd, like, shake his tail and whatever. And it was a new thing that he did. And one of the new things he learned was getting into our garbage. And we'd rearranged our garbage, our new kitchen, just to keep him from getting into our garbage. We had a pull-out drawer that he wouldn't get into. We knew that he wouldn't be able to get into it. And for two years, he didn't. And then at, like, nine and a half years old, he learned not only that he could pull the garbage by the bag, if I left a tiny bit, he could pull on that and pull the garbage out and eat the garbage. Then he learned that he could actually open up the door with his paw. Then he learned that he could move uh, the, the, the dishwasher that we had laid down in front of it. He could get around that. He learned to push back all the dishes in the dishwasher to get inside the garbage. And it was well over a year and a half of me and him in this ongoing battle trying to outwit each other that I finally realized I just need to take the garbage out <laughs> whenever I leave. And whether the bag is empty or full or whatever, I just have to take it out. And it, it frustrated me so much to come home to a chicken carcass on the ground <laughs> and coffee grinds and diapers and whatever. Really frustrating. But in retrospect, I learned that this dog got smarter, I think, because... We loved him. The more we loved him, the smarter he got. And I started to think, well, that's actually not a really surprise. The more we love our gardens, the better they grow, Mary, right? The more we love our children, the more possibility they have of their brains and their neurons and the security that they feel to explore and, 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 and 
try new things and the more opportunities that that leads to and possibilities, it's really not a surprise. The more we loved our dog, the more he learned, the smarter he got. And it created new problems. So today, if we go to the story of Acts, we started this in December, to kind of look at the early church, to look at the movement of Jesus in community, we could see some things. And, you know, Jesus was on this earth. He did some amazing, wonderful things. This, this uh, profound speaker and prophet and miracle worker that the disciples thought was going to be the king of Jerusalem. And to their surprise, he got executed. And they fled and they ran away and he died. And they thought it was over except Jesus came out of the tomb three days later. And then he went around in his physical body eating and talking and drinking and partying, and he, and he showed up to hundreds of people. And then we left, finally, he said, I'm going to leave for good, but I'm going to send you the counselor, my spirit, the Holy Spirit, Spirit of God. He's going to come and he's going to help you. He's got to wait for it. So the disciples, that, that you know, band of people, they went to the temple, they went to the upper room, they were waiting and praying, and then the Numa Spirit of God filled them up. The Spirit of Jesus, God's Spirit, third part of the Trinity, swoop, and they become rehumanized. They become new humans, new creations. It's like God breathing his spirit into Adam and Eve. He's now rebreathed his breath, his pneuma, his ruah, into them. And they're new people. And they see the world in a new way. And the early fruits of that was a radical reorientation of their spirituality, of their faith, and how they lived. And those people who were now new humans, embodied like Christ-following, Christ-looking, started to do things differently. They started acting differently. They no longer saw prejudice the same way. They saw their culture in a different way. They saw their relationships to others in a, in a different way. They started eating together every day. They started gathering as a, as a kind of extended spiritual family. They saw needs. And they joyfully, out of the overflow of the Spirit, gave. They sold their excess and gave to the people in need. And this was a very, very new way of living. It's a very different way to approach life. And people on the outside said, that's, that's pretty cool. What are you, that's weird what you guys are doing, that's, but I like it. And so more and more people joined this way of living. And the, the numbers grew. And this is, the, this is the early church, kind of busting out of the seams. And they were, saw miracles and they saw amazing things and you know, it said that Peter would walk through the town and just his shadow would heal people. And it was amazing, beautiful, culture transforming and irritating to the people at the top. And somewhere in Acts, I think it was Acts 5, the high priest and the religious leaders, they, they called in these apostles and they beat them up. And they've persecuted them and say, you need to stop doing what you're doing. Stop preaching about Jesus. He's dead. It's over. The movement's done. Let it alone. 
and they were about to be killed. The same anger that the high priest and the religious leaders and the establishment and the culture from that dark place that landed on Jesus, that scapegoating mechanism that was, had nowhere to go but, but to kill, was now turning on the apostles, Peter, John, Andrew, Thaddeus. And they were going to be executed. But someone stepped in. This person is an interesting person. He'll come up later. In Acts 5, the chief priest said to the, to the disciples, the apostles, didn't we give you strict orders not to teach in Jesus' name? And here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are trying your best to blame us for the death of this man? Peter and the apostles answers, it's necessary to obey God rather than men. The God of our ancestors raised up Jesus, the one you killed, hanging him on a cross. God set him on high at his side, prince and savior, to give Israel the gift of a changed life and sins forgiven. And we were witnesses to these things. The Holy Spirit, whom God gives to those who obey him, corroborates every detail. When they'd heard this, the religious leaders, they were furious and wanted to kill them on the spot. Remember that like mob-seething anger that can happen. Like blood rage murderous feelings. We're going to kill you like we did to Jesus. But one of the council members stood up, a Pharisee by the name of Gamaliel, a teacher of God's law who was honored by everyone. He ordered the men taken out of the room for a short time. And then he said, fellow Israelites, be careful what you do to these men. Not long ago, Theudas made something of a splash, claiming to be somebody, and got, about four, and got uh, 400 men to join him. He was killed. His followers dispersed, and nothing came of it. A little later, at the time of the census, Judas the Galilean appeared and acquired a following. He also fizzled out, and the people following him were scattered to the four winds. So I'm telling you, hands off these men, let them alone. If this program or this work is merely human, it will fall apart. But if it's God, there's, some, there's nothing you can do about it. And you better not be found fighting against God. And that convinced them. The disciples and apostles got a thorough whipping and warned not to speak of Jesus' name again, and they were sent off. Final, yeah, that final whipping, final beating. Gamaliel was a Pharisee, a really, really highly regarded Pharisee. You may recognize his name because he had a pupil. A student, Paul. And so Paul was kind of younger at this time. Gamaliel was his, was his teacher, his mentor. And Gamaliel was like very, very highly regarded, one of the highest ranking Pharisees that you, could, that you could have. And he stands in his whole room. And he's not a Jesus follower. He doesn't love Jesus. He's not a disciple of Jesus. He's not a, a follower of the way. He's got nothing interested in, in Jesus necessarily. But he's like, look, this is not the first time We've had kind of revolution. This is not the first person to come in and say they're claiming to be the Messiah. In fact, there have been many. He didn't even list them all. There are other people in this time, in this era, who gathered a following, started insurrection, were killed or thrown out, and their movements faded away. Nothing came of them. We don't have a religion. There's no churches in their names. Nothing happened. 
Gamaliel is very pragmatic. He says, look, if there's nothing to Jesus, this is just going to fizzle out. Don't worry about it. Let it be. Because you don't want to be on the wrong side of this thing. And that was it. Gamaliel saved these guys' lives, the apostles' lives, and they kept on disobeying, preaching Jesus, doing healings, meeting together. And guess what? The church kept growing. Despite persecution, later sin, and even in conflict. And one of the most exciting things happened as a result. Administration, organization, and bureaucracy. Three of the most exciting things you could find in the Bible. They grew so big and so fast, they were confronted with a problem. They lacked administration, they lacked organization, and they really didn't have a solid bureaucracy. Kind of weird. But what had happened is that the church was growing at such a clip, at such a rate, and it started in Jerusalem, but it kind of was spilling out, as Jesus said. And the people being added to the numbers were no longer just Hebrew-speaking Jews. In the in early days, Peter, Paul wasn't around yet. There's no missionary journeys yet. They didn't have the theological mind to go to the Gentiles yet. All these apostles are Jews. They eat, breathe, sleep, Judaism. And Jesus has changed their whole framework, but they're still Jews. And so in early days, the earliest converts are Jews. First Hebrew-speaking, but then Greek-speaking Jews from the diaspora, from the Jews that weren't located in Jerusalem. And they would come to Jerusalem, they'd come to the temple, they'd be a part of this thing, and it created conflict. It created a problem. In Acts 6, just not long after this, the disciples were increasing in numbers, leaps and bounds, Luke's tell us, Luke's, he tells us, and hard feelings developed among the Greek-speaking believers, or Hellenists, towards the Hebrew-speaking believers. Because their widows were being discriminated against in the daily food lines. I'm going to read that again. I think it's two sentences. And I want you to just, I want you just to sit with you Remember, these writers don't waste words. They are very smart, brilliant storytellers. We, today, are so easily skip over some of the most profound things because we read it too quickly. So I want you to, I'm going to read it again really slowly, and as whatever pops in your mind that seems odd or strikes you, I just want you to take a mental note of it. The disciples were increasing in numbers by leaps and bounds. Hard feelings developed among the Greek-speaking believers, Hellenists, towards the Hebrew-speaking believers because their widows were being discriminated against in the daily food lines. 
what stands out? Put up your, put up your hand. That's a question. It's not rhetorical. Daily food lines. Daily food lines. What else? Widows. What else? Discrimination. What else in there just stands out? Good question. A, uh, like a, a Greek, acculturated Greek person. So when Alexander the Great moved across the world, he Hellenized the world. He made it Greek-oriented, Greek culture, Greek language, Greek views. So they're Greek-speaking Jews. They're Jews kind of dipped in Greek culture. They don't live in Jerusalem. They don't, they're not a part of the, the temple circuitry. They're from a different part. Still Jews, but they're Greek. Does that make sense? It, it, it would be like what the westernization of the world, very similar. Like North American dominant culture goes over to China and Japan or, or Europe. Why is there a McDonald's in Japan, right? Like it's the Americanization of the world, same kind of idea. Greek, Greek culture was so popular, so dominant that it infiltrated every, every part of life. It's a good question. I hope that, hope that answers it. Anything else? Hard feelings? Interesting. It's kind of the first time we've saw that, hey? In the early church. Hard feelings. Because we haven't heard that yet. And most of it's joy, exuberant joy, whatever, whatever. Now we got hard feelings, tension, anger. Yeah. Then there's issues. We're growing fast, but we've got problems. Interesting. When we slow down really, really slow, when we get ourselves into the story, you've all picked up on it. It's excellent. The one thing you miss, that's all. Language barrier. Ethnic barriers. You have Hellenized Jews. Hebrew-speaking Jews. The Pharisees were part of a, 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 a sect of people who refused Hellenization. The more outside culture came into to Judaic thought, the more staunch the Pharisees became. We don't want your bathhouses. We don't want your, we don't want your auditoriums. We don't want your, your games. We don't want your, your culture. We don't want your language. Hellenized Jews would be like, no, we can live. We can live with both. So you have Hebrew-speaking Jews who are like really, really Hebrew and Greek-speaking Jews. There's a language barrier. There's a culture barrier. There's an ethnic barrier. And this is the first time they've really seen this in the New Testament church. And some scholars think that there's some deep-held resentment between these two groups. But really, it's just as simple as we don't speak the same language. So then... The widows, this is amazing. The most vulnerable people in the society, people who have no one looking out for them, they get the attention. They're the lightning rod. How? This is like a very, very new idea. People didn't take care of widows publicly in these kinds of communities. You may take care of your, your widow who's your mother, but you don't care about the widow down the street. That's no business of yours. Think of all the people that Jesus passed by who were begging, who were ill, who were ostracized from community. 
Even in Jewish community, they didn't have the same mechanisms or impulse to take care of their vulnerable. In fact, the Pharisees were known to take advantage of these people because they had no one looking out for them. And yet these early believers say, hey, our weakest people are being overlooked. That's amazing. What an incredible impulse. And then they said, and where, the, where this is happening is in the daily food line. I spent, time, I spent seven years in, uh, in the lower mainland in British Columbia. And downtown East Hastings, I don't know if you've ever been to Vancouver, it's like right up against Gastown, which is like the richest part of Vancouver. The next street over is the poorest. And all kinds of ministries, all, like there would be every week at Bible college, there'd be people get on buses to go down to serve in food lines. That was one of the ministries that you could do. Because the care and concern and effort that was sent to help the homeless and the disenfranchised and the, the addicted was off the charts. But we're not in 21st century Vancouver. We're in 1st century Jerusalem. There are no daily food lines. They don't do that. In severe crisis, the Caesar, when Rome is starving and there's no bread to be had, he would hand out daily bread to keep revolt, to keep people from murdering him and the whole society toppling over. But a benevolent sharing, a collected sharing of food and stuffs for the vulnerable and the weak and the hungry, happening on the daily, didn't, didn't exist. It's remarkable. So language, ethnics, ethnic barriers, vulnerability, and sharing are what brings this problem to the apostles. Good things. They're growing so quickly. It was so uncomfortable. They had never done it before. They didn't know what to do. The two things that they, 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 they do in response, I believe, you could argue, literally changed the world. They organized and they administrated. I don't know if you know, you may not know me very well. I'm a, I'm a horrible administrator. I'm really bad at it. It's not my impulse. I don't think like that. I'm, I love flying by the seat of my pants. Like, I'm not, I'm not organized. I resist administration. I resist bureaucracy. And yet these two things that these apostles did was so simply profound. They could have said, too, too bad for you. They were born and raised to feel that they were superior. That's the whole problem. That's the whole cultural milieu of this era is that the Jews thought that they were better, superior, chosen. Any outside influence, any pagan, any Gentile was less than, less than human. It would have been the easiest thing in the world for Peter to say, so what? Our family comes first. You can get the leftovers. 
But he didn't. They didn't. They recognized, oh, that's a problem. And they said, we got to do something about that. We need to organize this differently so that your Hellenized widows don't get discriminated in the lunch line because of a language barrier. And then they did another thing. They administrated. They delegated. They said, hey, um, I don't speak Greek. I'm not very good at speaking Greek. And I'm actually not a very good organizer. I feel like I have this compulsion that Jesus asked me to be the, the, the teller, the, like the, the preacher, the proclamator, whatever. Are there others who would do a, good, a better job organizing this group of people? And they said, yes, actually. There was a few of them. Everybody in the congregation thought it was a great idea. They went ahead and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, Philip, Prochorus, Nanakor, Timon, Parnaeus, and Nicholas, a convert from Antioch. They presented these guys to the apostles. They prayed for them, laid hands on them, and commissioned them to their task. The word of God prospered. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased dramatically. Even a lot of priests brought themselves to the faith. And there's a name in there that's, that's interesting that we'll get to. But, but basically, the growth, the change, the radical change compelled by Jesus to change community led these guys to do very boring things, organize and administrate. Organize the priority and administrate the action. They delegated themselves, and they didn't say, we're better than you, we're more superior than you, my job is more important than yours. They didn't say, we need some lackeys to kind of just fill in or people to plug the holes. They said, no, 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 who, who would do a better job at this? Who would, who would do this well effectively so that we can keep the mission, the need, met. And they chose these guys. And Nicholas from Antioch, interesting, that's a, that is a Greek town. There's a Jewish community there, but it's a Greek town. Someone else came from Antioch. Anybody know? Throw out his name. Spent a lot of time there. This is Paul's, like, hometown. Paul, Silas, this is like their home base. Not, not for some years, but it's, it's going to come. But this is like their launching pad for their missionary journeys. There's another name in there, Stephen. It's my dad's name. Barnabas. Barnabas. Stephen, he's not given the task of preaching. He's given the task of administrating. The lunch line, the people in the line, the widows looking out for those people. And yet, Stephen has one of the largest quoted sermons in the, in the New Testament. This wasn't long after that Stephen becomes the first martyr for the Christian faith. He's, he's stoned to death for his convictions about Jesus. And guess who's at his stoning? Guess who's listening to Stephen talk? 
Paul. Paul Saul, same name. Paul. He's listening to Stephen. I dare say, this is conjecture, but I'm going to make it. Had Peter and those apostles not followed their instinct to organize and administrate and to delegate out the tasks and to share the work and to, to be best suited for their roles, to, to know their giftings, to know what God's asking them to do and to let go where God wasn't asking them to do things, I dare say none of us would be here today. Because there'd be no Stephen, there'd be no sermon, there'd be no stoning, there wouldn't be Paul, there wouldn't be the same flowing of all these impulses that have now, like, are baked into our Christian identity, which is serving the other. And so a church like us, like our little church, like the larger evangelical church, if we're coming into conflict, we're coming into uncomfortable territory, we feel like something's not right. I don't feel good. I'm not sure I like the people we're trying to reach. I'm not sure I like the people that are coming into the lunch line. I'm not sure I'm comfortable with what I see happening. Sometimes, the conflict is actually the organic result of the movement of Jesus. And every congregation has the opportunity to take pause and, and look at the deeper need at what is Jesus actually doing and we get to respond to it. Sometimes it's as boring as organizing differently, administratingly differently, knowing ourselves, knowing what place we have. And so my, my simple question is what is Jesus asking you to do in this context, in this community? And maybe more importantly, why? Why is Jesus asking you to do that thing? My job is not any more important than yours. Maybe Jen. Maybe Jen's job is more important than all of us. But my job is not any more important. Your role, your contributions, your investment makes it all happen. What is Jesus asking you to do and why? Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that uh, your movement of the Spirit spurned and spawned a new humanity. We thank you that it shook things so deeply and it made things so uncomfortable that actually conflict was a result of it, necessary conflict, because the way things were working were not working. How people were living and, and believing and treating each other was not a reflection of you. And I thank you that that, uh, that work that your spirit does is ongoing. It hasn't stopped. You're still shaking the foundations. 
you're still stirring us up. And I ask that you would help us, you'd give us courage to respond, to see the need, to see where love is in action, where love is making change, and help us to respond. Help us to know what you're asking us to do, and more importantly, help us to really get in tune with why. Jesus, I know that you'll walk alongside each of us as much as we let you, and so may we be strong and courageous. In your name, amen.